Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is uh, Friday. It's 1 p.m. on the West Coast, uh, which can only mean one thing. It's time for the Veteran Founder Podcast. I am your host, Josh Carter, and uh, back from wherever in the world she was, she was at is Carmen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our show. Yeah, I am so happy. It's been uh, about a month since you've a been in studio, so welcome it. back. Thank you. I'm really excited to hear all about your adventures. Because well, you were in well, Hawaii was... and South America, and where else were you? I, I, I've been a little bit around this year, uh, <laughs> Europe too, but Hawaii, it was tough. You oh, know? yeah, it was I'm sure. we, we, we actually had hurricane winds one day, yeah. snow in Maui. Oh, man, and, uh, you poor rain, thing. You, but you'll get sunshine. no sympathy from me, my friend. Yes, I know. <laughs> Uh, but if you are unfamiliar with the show, welcome. Uh, every week we bring in these amazing veteran uh, founders who are we just bring them in and talk about their lives in the military, about their adventures in entrepreneurship and what they've learned. And this week, Carmen will be very happy. We have an Army vet. Yes. A West Point grad, Army. Ron Steptoe from uh, Warrior-Centric Health. Welcome to the program, Ron. Welcome, Thank Ron. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's a pleasure. We are excited to have you here. Uh, and, you know, the first thing that we typically do in the show is we get to know our founders. So, Ron, we really want to hear a bit about where you're from and uh, what prompted you to get into the Army. So, uh, appreciate that question. So, it's uh, a little bit layered, if you will. And the reason I say that is because, uh, well, first of all, let me start with both my wife and I. Are 1987 graduates from the United States Military Academy at West Point. So both my wife and I are, are graduates of the academy. We actually met there. And uh, as much as uh, cadets can date and all that other stuff, <laughs> that's where uh, our, uh, our interest in each other um, are, are started at. But um, I have to go back a little bit to give a little bit of my, my uh, family's military history, uh, which uh, to some degree may be uh, a bit unique. Um, I have a 238-year family history of service to the nation. And it's a particular interest as an African-American because my fifth great-grandfather, James Bowser, actually fought in the Revolutionary War. That's amazing. Yeah. It was an interesting thing. There was only 5,000 African-Americans that served during the Revolutionary War. There were about 200 um, folks that are part of the Continental Army, another 100 that were in part of the militia. So a total of 300,000, but 5,000 were African-American. And what was interesting was that uh, he's from Mass. He was uh, he and his son actually enlisted. He enlisted uh, in September of 1780 and his son just before the Battle of Yorktown. So let me talk a little bit about that because I think actually is quite interesting. So as uh, Corn, uh, General Cornwallis of the British was coming and making his southern run, trying to actually come up from uh, Georgia through South Carolina to North Carolina to Virginia, as he was making his way uh, north, as he was approaching North Carolina, uh, my grandfather actually uh, enlisted as, par- uh, as, a, as an individual in the Army and uh, was part of the Battle of, of Yorktown. And I, re- I bring that up. And then his son. Uh, also enlisted in January 1782. I bring that up because based on their service, they were both 
issue the nation's first veterans benefit, which was a land grant. Wow, Wow, that is amazing. Each one of them received 200 acres of land for a total of 400 acres. And the reason that's interesting is because they were free men. They rose, they, um, their families were free in Nazareth County, Virginia. What makes it even interesting is because their families were free, they were businessmen, uh, landowners. When the Civil War came about, uh, that was James Bowser I, James Bowser II. Well, James Bowser IV was a free man, 10 kids, raising his family, and now the South, just as the Civil War was about to start, three to four counties south of Richmond, Virginia. That's incredible. Okay. And they had the family actually had to walk around with ID cards that says, don't pick us up. We're not slaves. Whoa. OK, so imagine now being in this kind of um, having this situation where you're not part of technically the land gentry, although you are, but right. you're also not a slave. And so they lived in this interesting world and place. So one of the things that James Bowser IV always thought was that if his family's freedoms was suspect, as if other people's freedoms were suspect or um, not fully granted, then his family's also. So he became a union intelligence officer. Wow. In other words, a spy. Yeah. That's incredible. Unfortunately, he got caught. Oops. And was summarily uh, bought out from his house with his son was flogged and then beheaded on that property we got as part of our land grant for revolutionary war service wow so the son was left to live to tell people um what had happened and um so we live with this juxtaposition of uh, of immense pride and pain as it comes to military service and i talked a lot about that when i speak around the country about the juxtaposition of military service we would never um you know we love what we did in our time in our country but it does come at a cost yeah and so what was interesting about that was that uh it wasn't until 2011 that the associated press did a article on the black spies of the civil war at the 150 year mark post the civil war and they listed about six to seven um, black spies. And uh, you've heard, obviously, of Harriet Tubman, also Mary Bowser, who had uh, who was in the Confederate uh, um, um, White House with um, um, with the president at the time, at least for the Confederate Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, no relation, though. And uh, my third great grandfather, James Bowser, the fourth was listed as what happens when spies got caught. Oh, man. You know, every week, every week we bring in these founders, Carmen, and we ask the same question. What prompted you to get in the military? Never in my wildest dreams would I think that we would hear this kind of story. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is so fascinating, Ron. This is amazing that, one, I don't even know who people beyond my great-grandparents are. You know, I've met some some of my family from, like, Portugal, but this is fascinating to me. We could spend all hour just talking about this, by the way. Yeah, That's right. yeah, so, yeah, so it, it was, so it's an interesting history, and I bring that up because part of what I speak about to folks is to let them know why it's so important. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what we do in our work, but talking about the importance of caring for our veterans and making sure that we are doing the best we can for them. Because if we don't do it, the impact goes on for generations. My family never spoke, okay, of, uh, never spoke of him. 
Okay. And the reason they never spoke of him is because you imagine being landowners, they literally had to forget that he existed. Wow. Because if people knew what he did, they had to forget him. Sure. And so it wasn't until 2011 that that I actually uh, found the article. I started asking my mom some questions. She didn't even know how he passed away. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know what, uh, here it is, um, you know, like many other Civil War uh, veterans on you know, both sides, how do we take a look at it? But recognize these were folks who uh, died and for, forgotten in silence. And on behalf of them, I said, I must now begin to give voice mm-hmm. to not only my ancestors, but all of those folks that have served before, not only in the past, but also for what it represents in the future. Absolutely. Ron, this is amazing. And I, what what's so incredible about your story? is that you know, we always ask the same question about founders about you know, what's your why for starting a, a company? And yours is so well-defined, so well-ingratiated in, into your, uh, you know, your, led, your ancestry uh, that I, I absolutely love this, uh, the background here. So tell me a little bit. You, you, join, the, you join the Army. Uh, obviously, there's this great lineage of, of people behind you. Um, what did you want to do while you were in the Army, and what did you do? Yeah, so interesting enough, I got recruited to play basketball, okay, at the academy. This is another phase. So I was a fairly decent basketball player. So that the same times that, uh, excuse me, the same times that David Robinson was um, playing at the Naval Academy, I was playing against him uh, at, at, uh, at Army. I was co-captains of the team, started. So my whole basketball career was against the Admiral, okay, playing ball. <laughs> but obviously being at the academy, obviously wanted to excel there, not only on the court, but off the court. was very fortunate that I was pretty strapped military guy. By the way, I actually went to a private Catholic military uh, middle school and high school, if you can imagine that. Okay, <laughs> then straight on to West Point. Yeah, uh, and so pretty, uh, pr- pretty intense, but loved every minute of it. And so uh, when I was there, obviously met my met my wife. Uh, my intent was really to become a general. <laughs> it was nice. my my, my my thought. Uh, you know, and just go all the way through, but also always had this interest in business too. So I, I remember when I was at the, my military, um, at the military high school called St. John's College High School in Washington, D.C., by the way, it had the nation's first JROTC program in the uh, 1920s. The school started in 1851. Um, but that's, but I remember um, thinking to myself, um, either from a general perspective, and to some degree, there was always an interest in business too. I knew it, and you wouldn't spend my rest of my time in the military. At some point, you would get out. But I always noted that many of the significant generals and or business people, executives that were leading major business enterprises, they all, at least from my perspective, had a military background. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I was like, okay, if that's the deal, so where's the best place that I could go? And so pretty much if you weren't from... West Point, Naval Academy, or VMI. I didn't talk to you. I, I tore up every other scholarship letter or offer that came. And if you weren't from the academy, I didn't talk to you. Nice. Good for you. For, I love that, that you had choices, right? Like you could have mm-hmm. gone anywhere, pretty much. And you picked this amazing service. And so I, th- I appreciate everything. You're very mission-driven, which is great. So talk to me about your time. What, what did you do while you were in? So I was still artillery officer, which okay. I love. Go red legs. Uh-huh. 
Okay. <laughs> we like to blow things up. Yeah. Okay? But no, I love being a field artillery uh, officer um, at, uh, at that time. It's interesting now because, you know, I'll sit down and talk to some of the younger officers now in the field artillery. And for most folks don't know, we dealt with a 155 self-propelled. So pretty much moving, shooting, uh, obviously uh, advancing ordnance downrange uh, so the infantry uh, folks could do what they needed to get uh, done. King of battle. And um, what was interesting about that is that um, when I was a field, I was a field um, forward observer, basically, which is looking out out with the infantry units or with the armor. Actually, which was with the 194th Armor Brigade, which is based out of Fort Knox, Kentucky. So we obviously would look and scout and see where we need to put rounds downrange with the folks forward uh, deployed. But when I actually got a chance to become a fire direction officer, which is actually being responsible for where those rounds actually went and landed, that was a pretty intense position because if anything was off, people literally <laughs> would die based on those rounds yeah. not being uh, where they needed to land. But uh, it's interesting now just looking at technology and things. I, I rem- now talk to some of the folks now with GPSs out. Each one of the, the guns, if you will, those six guns in a battery, um, they actually co- what we call lay themselves. In other words, they know where they're positioned at. They know exactly where the target is they know uh elevation they know a whole bunch of other things so they literally can do it on their own but back in the olden days of the late 80s and 90s we actually had to use charts and darts we had computers but we literally had these sticks that we would do and plop and plot and map each gun and where the rounds would need to go and it was very technical very intense had great ncos but actually love uh love that was my that was one of my funnest times actually being in there in command in control being responsible recognizing that it was life and death but at the same time working with my uh, crew so that the, the mission could get done that, yeah. that was that was fun so ron you served uh, in the 80s and 90s how long were you in the military so i was and just for our military commitment so as you know with the academies um you have a five-year commitment with another three years in the reserves most people don't know this actually a eight-year total time commitment mm-hmm. so as many of you probably remember right after the first gulf war um which would have been right at 91 okay yep. they started to do a huge downsize of the military so for a few uh, folks they were like look and this is before they started the rift um uh, the reduction in force. So one of the things they said, if you had, you know, X amount of time left, you could do the rest of your time in reserve. So I served right around about four years and four months. And the rest of the balance of my eight years was done in reserves. And that's when I transitioned into the uh, civilian sector. And my wife also was stationed with me at Fort Knox as part of the 194th Armored Brigade. She was quartermaster. Uh, so she was, at, I think, the 5-2nd, uh, the 522nd Maintenance Battalion. And then uh, just before the war kicked off, we had got uh, positioned at uh, West Point back at the academy to do uh, uh they have a, pro- a program called project outreach and so part of that was um to go out into local communities primarily disadvantaged communities african-american latino communities to basically show that you know uh you don't have to be blonde and bl- blonde and blue eyed to go to the academy there are a lot of different people a lot of different backgrounds and so one of the ways they projected that was bringing uh, academy graduates back which done their first tour of duty having come back to the academy and so we both spent a year going out around the country basically selling west point so it was interesting that we uh that the war kicked off right around that what august september time frame if you will mm-hmm. uh moving into kind of the fall if you will so you know we would go out and talk to kids and at night 
had come back and, you know, the war was going on. So it was an interesting time to recruit. I got my highest number. I got some of the highest numbers ever recruited, just to say. (laughs) People were excited and ready to go. Very cool. We've been talking to Ron Steptoe from Warrior Centric Health. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. CPA dudes where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. And we're back. Uh, we've been talking to Ron Steptoe uh, from Warrior Centric Health. I want to do something real quick, uh, Carmen. Yes. This On his website, uh, Ron, I want to read your your just the last paragraph of your bio because it's uh, really impressive. Do you mind if I do that real quick? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so Ronald serves on the board of directors of USA Cares Incorporated, a veteran service organization. In 2013, the Honorable Ronald J. Steptoe was awarded by the governor of Kentucky, the state's highest uh, honor with a commission into the Honorable Order of Kentucky Colonels for his national work serving the military and veteran communities. In 2014, Ronald received an appointment as an adjunct instructor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. He is a board-certified diplomat by the American Board of Disability Analysts. Prior to joining Pfizer 26 years ago, Ronald served as an officer in the Army. Uh, Jeez, dude, talk about overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. holy mackerel i uh w- there's so much to unpack here i mean uh you so we, we as we were going into the break we were talking about you uh transitioning out of the military and clearly we just read that you were at pfizer what was the first job you got when you got out of the military so it actually was as a sales rep uh for uh for pfizer pharmaceuticals and i had the dc market so i actually came back home to mm-hmm. my community, which was wonderful. Seems like we tend to go back home sometimes as vets, right? No, absolutely. Um, but it was, it was great to come back to the area. So I had Washington, D.C. And interesting uh, enough, when I first started out, my first five years was actually calling on community-based uh, physicians. Uh, I actually had the uh, Washington VA as well. And then I got promoted about five years later into institutional sales. So um, I covered most of the what we call tertiary, which is uh, somewhat academic hospitals, if you will. So there have been Georgetown, George Washington, uh, community hospitals like Providence Hospital and uh, Washington Hospital Center. But I also had responsibility for military hospitals. So I called on Andrews Air Force's base, Malcolm Grove um, Hospital, Walter Reed, as well as Bethesda Naval Hospital at the time, which is now National uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And so just had a, a, a great opportunity. I launched about 10 different um, uh, medical therapies uh, working with Pfizer. So uh, and was responsible for bringing some of the world's leading experts as we were inter- introducing them. And some of the products that people may be familiar with, if you've heard of Zyrtec or Zithromax or Viagra or Lipitor or Norovast, uh, all those products I actually launched uh, fresh into the Washington, D.C. market with a lot of my colleagues. Amazing. Yeah, so uh, all of that uh, background kind of probably prepared the way for your business. It, you know what, Carmen? That's a great question, and it and it did, and 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 somewhat of a very unique way. So one of the things that kind of got me started here, if you will, is I, I kind of sometimes speak of this additional duties. We in the military always find ourselves taking on additional duties, like we don't have enough to do already, right? <laughs> right. But, but we always find ourselves kind of in that place. So 
There was in the mid to late 90s, this concern and recognition in healthcare that individuals, when they went into medical settings, not everything was equal as it relates to outcomes. Um, and we were seeing a lot of that, quite frankly, in some of the vulnerable populations, whether it was based on race, ethnicity, gender, age. Um, and when I say age, I mean some of the folks that may be uh, our elder uh, citizens, if you will, their outcomes were just different than other groups of people. We also see it in women. Um, and so one of the things that, that Pfizer at the time was interested in very much, and I think a lot of people uh, were interested in, is this whole issue of healthcare disparities. So that's where I did a lot of my quote unquote uh, extra duty at was in that area and um, actually found a real nice niche in having an understanding for that. And so I actually led one of the national teams we had it was an ad hoc team, totally voluntary uh, amongst our colleagues around the country. But uh, I was able to frame up some business models about how we would address working with a lot of advocacy groups uh, in the area, such as the National Medical Association, the National Hispanic Medical Association, this, um, the uh, uh, Asian Pacific Islander uh, Physician Association and some of the other uh, ancillary uh, nursing allied health professionals about how we're going to address these disparities in health and health care that we saw in our community. So that's where I really cut my chops, if you will, and really understanding that not only was there a challenge from a health care perspective, but it also had an impact on business as it relates to health care. And so it was really kind of how do you match these things to get them aligned where you could align providing the best care to all folks but at the same time, making it such that your business was able to optimize not only return clinically, but also from a revenue perspective. So I spent about a good eight years just in that space and in that field. And quite frankly, that that would become the genesis of Warrior Centric Health, specifically focused on veterans health care disparities. But that's where I spent 14 years really getting that industry knowledge of the sector and the space that would then apply eventually and into the firm that would start uh, some years later. And what year did you uh, what year did you form Warrior Centric Health? So we started Warrior Centric Health, the venture part of the company, and I okay. call it venture because it's a venture-backed uh, firm in right. 2016. However, okay. in 2008, when the Walter Reed crisis happened, that's when we were able to actually get on the ground and actually uh, bring some of the solutions that have been developed. My chief medical officer, Dr. Evan Lewis, also happened to work at Pfizer. and She was director of uh, policy at Pfizer. So she was part of the group that worked with me on this team about how we're addressing healthcare disparities. So when I left Pfizer in 2005, we said, hey, maybe one day we might get back together and uh, pull the whole gang together again and, and do something. Well, in 2008, when the Walter Reed crisis happened, where we're having people now uh, from 2001 to 2007, there were a lot of issues of reference to the facilities and just concerns. And so the RAND Corporation, under the direction of Congress, put out the our RAND Corporation Invisible Wounds of War report. And uh, so Dr. Lewis and I had a chance to review that. Actually, I reconnected with her uh, and I said, hey, look, some of the stuff we did in industry relative to vulnerable populations, from what this report is saying, veterans are just as a have, have health care disparities uh, as well as health disparities, just like any other group. In fact, mm -hmm. if you look at the data, they have higher incidences of mental and behavioral health challenges because of their work environment, not because of who they are, but basically what they did. Sure. Um, they have higher incidence of cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, musculoskeletal. We're like, wait a minute, 
why is any does anybody recognize that there are a vulnerable population as well? So that's where we really started to focus. We started to bring those best practices from industry. We actually uh, built the platform within uh, one of the research arms of the Department of Defense called the Telemedicine and Technology Research Center out of uh, Fort Detrick. We got funded with some of our work um, that we did at the old Walter Reed and then at the new Walter Reed at uh, Fort Hood, at the new Walter Reed and at Fort Hood, Texas. And we did that from 2012 to 2014. And the results came back uh, with stellar results, p-value of 0.001, which basically means if you did this a thousand times, 999 times, you get the same results. So from there in 2016, um, we decided that it was time for us to really move forward in the commercial sector. And the reason we did that is, is if you remember 2014, the, uh, the VA crisis took place. Mm-hmm. But we also recognized that what America had totally missed in this whole, quote unquote, um, uh, issue of really pointing fingers at the VA is that they weren't the only uh, they didn't have the they weren't the only ones with the issue. And what I mean by that is the crisis happened with only 30 percent of veterans actually actually registered and using the VA on an annual basis. And so if you look at the being about 20, 22 million vets, 9 million are registered with the VA, but the VA only sees 6 million vets on an annual basis for care. And so why, do you, why do you think was, that is? Why do you think the, the, the veterans aren't engaging the VA in, in, a, in a better way? So I think there are a few things that we have to have an understanding about. Sure. First, the VA was never designed to care for every element of a veteran. Secondly, okay. the other thing, too, is that the VA was designed to deal with an issue that would have been considered service connected. Now, there are extenuated circumstances depending on whatever priority rating you have. So if you're at a 50 percent or higher disability rating, then, yes, the VA will look at providing you with more than just the care for a service connected condition. Hmm. If you happen to be an indigent okay, veteran, then, yes. Um, they would look at taking care of uh, some of your other needs. But again, you have to go through a a process of that. But the majority, vast majority of veterans um, that we have, you tend to have to go in for a service-connected condition. I give an example. I'm a service-disabled vet. I have something called Morton's disease or an aroma on my foot, basically from wearing combat boots. Believe it or not, your feet can get jacked up. Uh, I haven't run in 20 years because my feet will bother me, but you get a 10% rating uh, when that it, when that condition is where it's at. I got a bit of it resolved. It doesn't bother me as much now, so my rating uh, went down, but I'm still a rated veteran even at zero. Hmm. Uh, that's still considered to have a rating, but I only can go into the VA for full payment and coverage of that particular issue which relates to my foot. If I go into the VA for any other care, and because I have private health insurance, by law, if it's not service connected, okay, the VA must charge my private health insurance company. Interesting. Well, I, so, I, yeah, I so hear there's that. A lot of complexity. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear that, and and I think the I think the interesting piece of that is it's really hard, especially if a vet, if a military person, uh, you know, for example, if they have surgery while they're in service. Uh, does that count as as part of their? You know, do they get a rating for because they had got a scar that they didn't have when they went in, right? So there's a lot of these variables that um, that the VA puts in place uh, for veterans to figure for out whether or not they're going to get 
uh, connected, right? Service-connected disability. Disability. Yeah. Now, Ron, I had heard that if you are a veteran now, like, like let's look at unemployed veterans or homeless, and you don't have insurance, the VA will see them. Is that correct? Yes. So if you're indigent at a certain uh, income level that you're below a certain rate of the, of the poverty level, yes, you're right. The VA will see them. And, but interesting enough, there's only about 100. And last count I reviewed was about 180, just shy of about 200,000 people that fit into that category. Right. OK, there are, diff- there are eight different priority groups that they have. And basically, uh, priority groups one, two, and three are basically for 50% or higher and or POWs or uh, folks that are uh, Purple Hearts, but definitely POW folks. When you look basically at four, five, six, seven, and eight, those are folks that uh, fit into different stratas. And um, if you have, again, a certain income level, you have to do a means test each year on your income level to see whether or not the VA is going to provide you all of your care free or whether or not they're going to be charged. So, yes, to your question, Carmen, yes, folks that are indigent at a certain level, yes, the VA will take care of. But it's not as many people as you would think. What a lot of people don't recognize is that veterans, 90 percent of veterans have some level of insurance, uh, whether it is commercial for their jobs that they have, uh, maybe Medicare, a whole bunch of other things that we get um, that we the way we can have insured, be insured. The other thing is the misnomer that, you know, veterans are down and out. No, the facts are is that male veterans make five thousand dollars more a year than non-male veterans and female vets make ten thousand dollars a year more than non-female vets. So we're probably one of the most. Um, uh, educated, well-insured, highest-income group of people in America. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. So, warrior-centric health, the commercial side of things, right. break break that down in, in a more digestible, like, if you had 30 seconds to tell me what they do, what you guys do, how would you explain that? What I basically would do is, if you, really, if you go into a hospital system and you see specialized care such as women's health or geriatric health, you would see a hospital listed down as quote got the programs and services they provide. We basically, um, we have the fifth largest health uh, system in the country. I have to be careful about naming them right now, but the, uh, they have 94 hospitals, 22 states. They basically have a military and veteran health program which basically means that they are really working to be able to serve veterans and special population. We are the company that provides all the back-end support to that as it relates to providing the education, the training, the data relative to veterans. Uh, We are the group that actually uh, assists them in actualizing that capacity. Perfect. We've been talking to Ron Steptoe from Warrior Centric Health. We're going to take another quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Today's episode of The Veteran Startups is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. For instance, media relations. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. And we're back. We've been talking to Ron Steptoe from Warrior Centric Health. He was just explaining what you guys do. Basically, uh, I'm really curious. What do you think it was uh, throughout your military career that helped define your successes here in your business? 
uh, perseverance. Yeah. Without uh, w- without question, and I think that's unif- I think that's a uniform term that you could apply to uh, to the veteran community. I mean, you just had to be persevere in order to make it. You you just had. Okay, it's a trait that uh, I think your time in the military would be very difficult without having that. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree. Um, or to a large degree, that that is a critical uh, part of, I think, success in general, especially if we're looking at moving into the corporate sector. But I think specifically as it relates to entrepreneurship, it is an absolute, absolute must because you're going to go through some things and it really becomes mind over matter. A lot of times you've got to figure out how to make do and make things work when there appears to be no way to make it work. And you got to figure out how to MacGyver your business, your finances, your life, everything. And uh, I think that the training we get in the military uh, in a life and death situation to some degree uh, puts us in a, a position mentally to actually be, be able to take on that task. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I think it's it's, and I think it's the thing that separates veteran founders to non-veteran founders is just that tenacity, the persistence, the mission-driven, uh, all those adjectives that you would use typically use for a veteran uh, founder. They're just in, they have them in spades. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's it, like I said. It's it's a. I I don't know if I would be where I am at without having that experience and going through and creating that mental sure. toughness uh, of what uh, of what it takes. So it's been everything to me. But then again, I've kind of been involved in this all my life. So I may be a little bit biased and, and skewed, but I can tell you, you know, my wife is also a vet uh, as well. Um, I, I, I just, and I've got friends and, and stuff. I, I, yeah. I just see it as a major difference. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, Ron, um, can we go back to your business? I, I wanted to better understand who your clients are, and because I'm looking at your website, and um, I see that it, it, on on the client and partners, you have other healthcare systems as your clients. Can can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I sure can. So one of the things, as I told you before, that from our company, obviously, when you're in business, you try to determine, okay, where is a market at or where where is it not at, right? And believe it or not, uh, potentially the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge is where it's not at. And let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. So remember when I said that less than 30% of veterans are registered and get their care at the VA on an annual basis, but yet the narrative is that all the all veterans get their care at the VA. The challenge is, is that people took that to heart and there was never really an infrastructure built on veterans that are not at the VA. The 70% of veterans that are in the commercial sector. Now, let's take a few seconds to, to dissect that for a second. Because what's important to recognize is that a veteran has a universal experience and a work environment that is very hazardous. As I tell folks here, if OSHA requirements were in place for the military, we couldn't do our jobs. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we're inherently in a very dangerous and dealing with various dangerous things. Well, those dangerous things could have either an acute situation health-wise or a chronic health con- condition. I would say that many times it has acute, but most of the time it's chronic. So with that being said, the question became, we know that veterans have higher incidences of many health conditions than that if 70% are not at the VA, where are they at? They're in the commercial sector. 
So then we began to investigate the commercial sector and say, well, what platforms do they have? How are they addressing veteran health? Are they even asking the question have veterans served? And then we recognized that they weren't. We began to work with the American Hospital Association in 2013. They had not recognized the veterans as a vulnerable population. As we began to partner with them, work with them by 2016, veterans and their families were officially recognized as a vulnerable population. So we realized that the entire commercial healthcare sector really had very limited knowledge that was being projected and um, as it relates to veterans health care as a vulnerable population. So we teamed up with the American Hospital Association's Institute for Diversity and other uh, organizations, particularly our work at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, to say that we would begin to make sure the nation understood that veterans were a group of people that had significant health concerns that weren't being addressed. And then we designed a business model that will allow us to upskill the commercial sector and being able to address that need. And the reason it was important for commercial health care to take a, uh, take a look at that, because if you look at veterans, 20 plus million, plus remember 5 million National Guard many times can't even, or can't even go to the VA, so that's 25 million people. If you add their family members, at least two family members, because that's very important to health care, uh, both patient and family engagement, what you find out is that's 75 million people, 25% of the U.S. population. And if you attach $5,500 in commercial, uh, let's say uh, $5,500 in uh, health insurance value, whether it's through Medicaid, Medicare, whatever uh, private insurance you have, that is a $300 billion spend on health care wow. that is not optimized. And just to provide just one last bit of scope and scale to that, the entire oil and gas revenues in the United States, and I looked at this several years ago, it's actually down now, but it was $268 billion. The, mili- the veterans and their family commercially insured health care market is larger than the entire oil and gas revenues in the U.S., and no one codified it until our organization began to put shape and function and some business around understanding that veterans are not understood, our market from healthcare is not being optimized, and it's in commercial healthcare's best interest to make sure that we get the care that we need because it improves quality care, but it actually impacts their their bottom line. And no one knew this until well, that, we showed up. Well, that totally answered my le- next question, which was, why should these private healthcare companies even give a shit, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, right. but but there's the, now that you've put some quantifiable numbers in it. Uh, they 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 clearly could and and really help and and be efficient at it. Uh, what do you think? Exactly. What do you think is the biggest challenge for you to get into new markets? You've done really well in getting into these different private healthcare groups, but but what's keeping you from spreading this all over the country? So right now, it's the it's the obviously the entrepreneurs' the dilemma and and venture. One, you've got to get folks to actually get product market fit, which we have, but it's taken us ten years to get to that right. Yeah. But then once you got product market fit. And we know the product, the, the need is there. How do you then begin to get, uh, you know, tested in the market where you're generating revenue? Then once you've got that, okay, then okay, how will it scale? Is this scalable? Is it commodity? You know, is it a commoditized? Is it scaled? Does it have national appeal? Does it have right. international appeal? So you've got all those things you've got to work at, and you've got to frame while also building the plane while you're flying. So we've been very fortunate to be able to get um, not only early stage investment at the friends and family, then on to the um, uh, to the uh, angels, and now we're in our seed round. We're working with the group 
group called Stony Lonesome Group, which uh, they actually were the first venture group to start a veterans health fund. Okay, and West Point grad class of 1990, but they saw this. They're focused on cybersecurity and other areas, but specifically they created a veterans health fund and were one of the companies that they began to invest in uh, to help us move things uh, forward. So we're now finally at a point where, uh, again, we've got six major hospitals we're working with now. We've got a a pathway and identify for another 18 we'll be bringing on and some other partnerships uh, we are forming up with the nation's largest group per organization so we're at that scale point now but again it was bootstrapping and you know many people sometimes you know sometimes the problem be so big that people just don't understand right. it what you're talking about and that was one of the major issues that um that that we had to get to uh that is something that you can't just simplify we hopefully made a very simple solution but it's a major big problem that's a national problem in, in scope and how do you begin to get people to understand your business isn't just a widget yeah. it's actually a solution yeah so so talk about that for a second you know our listeners some of them are entrepreneurs people that want to become entrepreneurs uh how, how did you frame your story so that it made sense as you were looking for funds? So part of one of the things that that I think and I believe, I'm not sure if anybody uh, is familiar with Steve Case's book, um, The Third Wave, Mm -hmm. okay? And one of the things that he talks about is this kind of the next wave. Third wave companies are companies that will really be solving, taking the Internet of Things, IoT, right? Mm -hmm. And solving major issues um, that are dealing with healthcare, education, transportation, the very complex areas, right? The interesting thing about those fields is that you've had academicians, okay, and people that have studied these issues, and they have put their academic prowess to bear and said, hey, look, here's a problem, and here's a recommended solution. But they leave it there. They don't then take the solution. So I believe a sweet spot, okay, and this one follow-on book talks about regulatory hacking, okay, is how do you now look at those policies They tell you what the problem is. They tell you what the solution set should look like. How do you begin to map, okay, a solution set, okay, that you could bring to market for a clearly identified problem? And then the question becomes, how do you begin to develop your case, you know, your case studies, get an initial, uh, you know, uh, MVP together, minimal viable product, do you get a beta? So all those things we were very fortunate to be able to do in the context of what was happening at the uh, war and post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. traumatic brain injury and education. But then we once we got once we got to that point, we then had to figure out how do we now iterate and move this into a market segment that really became the commercial end. So most people would think, oh, this is a DOD problem. This is a VA problem. No, that might be where you start, but you may find yourself at a whole different place. And we realized that actually our solution set, even though we started with the Department of Defense, actually was the commercial sector. And there was a lot of iteration, a lot of it, things that we had to do and pivoting that we had to do to uh, to get here. And every pivot was painful. Oh, I bet. I bet. And then, but that, how, how did you manage to do that? How many, how did you manage to recognize that a pivot needed to occur? Well, part of what we did was, again, being with industry experts and just being very thoughtful and reading. You know, I tell, again, one thing I like about, um, quote unquote, this public policy slash social entrepreneurship space, especially if you go down the track with dealing with major issues. And I talk about, you know, these uh, these major uh, issues. There's so many papers and things that are out there that are defining the paper and the next step. And it really is kind of following the breadcrumbs to this initial problem. And can you solve for that? 
and work with industry folks that, um, and that's why it was important for me to have been spent 14 years in healthcare because I had the background of knowing industry experts to go to. Yeah. Remember, I did those extra duties. Those extra duties got me access to people outside of my normal job that would become the experts that I would actually go back to. And so we were constantly checking in with policymakers. We were constantly checking in with um, with some of the world's leading authorities on, look, this is what we're thinking. This was the policy set. What if we tweak this to this? What do you think? Yeah, well, what about this? What about that? So it was an iterative process that really had the community of experts. We were just the people that were going to put the solution, take the risk, and try to make sure that we we're bringing a solution based on what the experts said needed to get done. And we felt that that limited the risk. We just had to make sure that as we iterated, could we do it and map it against when the market would understand it? And to some degree, we had to shape the market. Yeah. Some degree, we had to, we, we uh, a large degree, we actually had to define the market. So Makes I sense. told you it's kind of, you know, and so that that is, that is a bit when you're getting into these sectors and these spaces of the third wave where Steve K says really the next uh, the next leap will take place. Um, that is where you have to be very well read, study, and we read everything. We just I have to read it, it, we read everything. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. Uh, this has been great. We're gonna take our final break. We've been talking to Ron Steptoe of Warrior Centric Health. We'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code startupruby. So uh, we, we're back with Ron Steptoe from Warrior Centric Health. We have a few minutes left, and I, I really want to wrap up the show talking about a couple of things. The first being, we always ask this at the end of our shows uh, of every entrepreneur, but we want to know, you know, every entrepreneur makes mistakes as they go along the way. But what's the one mistake you've made that you thought, I am never, ever, ever, ever going to make that same mistake again? And what have you mitigated? What have you done to mitigate the risk of that happening again? Wow. That's a very, very good uh, question. Um, what you know, it's an interesting question that you that you bring that up because uh, even the mistakes I've made, I see as being learning. And really, my mistakes have hurt really, 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 really bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm like real bad, right? Yeah. But there's so much learning that comes from that that I almost sometimes wonder about the mistakes themselves. Actually, wind up being some of the biggest gems and goals, and and not having that mistake, we wouldn't be where where we're at. Sure. So I find it tough. I find it a tough question because uh, my, my wife told me I'll give a, a total the hundred benefit, but I always see the the okay the um the the benefit the the positive side of things. Drives my wife crazy. Yeah. Okay. Um. But um. And maybe that's why I've been able to survive. Okay. Is because I do try to take a look at. So what can we learn sure. out of this? Now the challenge maybe with that having that type of attitude is um you know sometimes maybe I, I lull myself into some false sense of reality okay and not really seeing the pain that other people are suffering going through with your family as you're losing this and losing that and lifestyles change and how do you manage the psychology mm-hmm. okay of, uh, of that and maybe being a bit more empathetic okay to the fact that while you're pursuing this dream some people around you may feel as if their life's falling apart okay? that's a good point yeah 
Yeah. You know, so I, I think from my perspective um, that uh, one of the biggest things I've learned is just recognizing what the true cost, not only as you as entrepreneurs got your hand of the business every day. Right. But what about that significant other that's supporting your family mm-hmm. member that sees the world turning upside down? They're frightened for you. They're not sure. What are we doing? You know, does this make sense that we make the right choice? And how do you attend to not only your own psychological needs, but the psychological needs of them in that process? I'm glad you brought that up because it's so uh, important for for people to understand the mental capacity of just what happens when you push your chips all in and start a business and what that does to you mentally. And as a founder, it's it's even more hard because you're on this your little island by yourself, right? You can't go complain to your wife about it. You can't go complain to your spouse about the hard times. Your co-founder doesn't want to hear it. Your employees don't want to hear it. Uh, how, how do you, what outlets do you, do you have to, to really get some of those frustrations out? Well, one thing is I'm a, a man of absolute um, faith, and that is the only, I literally, and it's, and I tell folks that the, this whole ride has been a spiritual journey for me, okay? I've always been a faith, but I've absolutely been absolutely converted, okay? Yeah. And the power of uh, something greater, in this case, for me, God, uh, and being able to get up every day to take out on the mission that I think he really has us doing at Warriors Centric Health to really improve the lives of our service members, veterans, and their family. I, I Ron Steptoe, take ownership of God placing that in my heart to move hmm. forward. So when I get up in the morning, okay, um, I spend anywhere between 15 to minutes to an hour, depends on how crazy it is, just in meditation and prayer. So when I put my foot on the floor, irrespective of what's going on, okay, I'm here to do the work that God has set out for me to do today. Makes and sense. only worry about today. Yeah. And can I get back into bed, okay, and still be here? I love it. Ron, you're an amazing person. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk to you. Um, where can people find you? You can find us at uh, warriorcentrichealth.com. You can find us on Twitter at warriorcentrichealth. Uh, also LinkedIn, uh, Ron Stepto at LinkedIn. And uh, just appreciate the opportunity of what you guys are doing and really getting the word out there for, for veteran entrepreneurs. You, you guys are so needed. You're so, um, uh, again, we just appreciate everything you do. And I wish you the best with your continued success in getting the word out on the power and impact of veterans in our communities. Thank you, Ron. Same to you, my friend. And uh, wish you all the best. And uh, let us know what we can be doing to be helpful beyond uh, you know, just the, the radio stuff. Uh, we're here to help and uh, and hopefully support you. So have a wonderful weekend. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. We will be here every Friday at 1 p.m. Uh, listen, learn, get things done. See you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.